Hello, and welcome to the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. My name is Nene White, and I am so grateful to be able to bring the following conversation to you because so much that was shared was just immensely rewarding on every possible level of mind and heart. William Stixrud, PhD, is a clinical neuropsychologist who has been in private practice since 1985. He has also over the years been professionally associated with or has been a faculty member at numerous institutions of higher education, including Children's National Medical Center, Georgetown University Medical School, Children's Hospital of Boston, Harvard Medical School, and the Division of Neurophysiology at the National Institutes of Health. Bill's most recent book, The Self-Driven Child, is an important, I would even say a critical resource for our times, essential reading for all educators and parents who are concerned about raising children who will be fully prepared to live their own best self-sufficient lives once they reach adulthood in a world that we can only slightly imagine what kinds of challenges they will be faced with. This conversation, based around his book, which is co-authored with Ned Johnson, brings together so much that I'm sure you understand about child development. But with this information, thoroughly researched as it is, you can feel even more confident in being the very best possible influence on nurturing self-driven, self-motivated children in your work and life. Children who take in all kinds of things that need to be considered when making good, right, healthy, constructive decisions. I'll just take one more moment to draw your attention to a point that Bill highlighted multiple times throughout our conversation. And that is that the more anxious and driven by vague fears that we are, the more controlling of the kids in our care we tend to become, which has been shown through research to have seriously negative impact on children's long-term development. This is not to imply that we don't use sensible levels of precaution and preparation, but when precaution and preparation get out of balance, children's lives become overly controlled, which reduces their need and their right to increasing levels of control over their own decisions. With us acting as not controlling and controllers, controlling teachers and controlling parents, but as trustworthy and supportive and wise consultants. It's a world of difference that can make all the the, the difference in how the children in our care develop. The thing is, kids need practice making decisions. And the earlier we provide those kinds of healthy opportunities for them, the better. The better in so many, many ways, which you will appreciate as you share this conversation. Of course, I put all kinds of helpful links in the show's notes for you, so, so be sure to check those out. And for even more helpful bite-sized insights from this and other episodes, you are always 
invited to follow this, the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast on Instagram. We would love to connect with you there. All right, let's get this started. Hi, Bill. Hey. Hey. So uh, we are going to talk about your work as a clinical neuropsychologist. Okay. And also about your best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child, The Science mm-hmm. and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. Oh, my God. I love this so much. <laughs> cool. So I do, you, I do too. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. I know you do. Um, you make a strong point that even very young children need to feel that their personal views and their priorities matter. Yeah. So why... Um, in your in your perspective, is that it's so important to make sure that kids know that we, the adults in their lives, know that their personal views and priorities matter? Well, I think that on the one hand, <laughs> you know, when you deal with it, you can't make a newborn eat. You can't make them sleep. Uh-huh. So you, you really have to deal uh-huh. with them. As individual uh, people who have uh, their own rhythms and, and their own likes and dislikes, you just have to. Oh, oh. So it's just kind of, in part, it's just dealing with reality oh. that they are they are individual people, and that we don't always know what they want. We don't always know what, what's right for them, and I, what's always best oh. for them. And my my goal is for, for 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 parents is to raise kids who know how to run their own lives before they yes. leave home. Yes. And so I, I, I want to work backwards and I work backwards mm-hmm. by, by saying for the, the time they're very little, I want to, I want to let them know, I respect the fact that you're an individual person and that, that what, what, what my, I told my own kid, he has, he has a wonderful Jewish mother say, how do you eat more, eat more. And, and I, I, take, <laughs> I take him aside and say, look, you're the expert on you. You know, when you feel, when, when you know what it feels like to, to feel hungry, you know, what it feels like when you feel full makes sense to me that you eat you eat when you're hungry and you stop when you're full right you know and just that, 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 that but you you're the one who knows that best about you yeah. and i think that you know many people have said that the best way to relate to people is to ask is to act act is treat them as if they had a sign on their head saying make me feel important mm-hmm. and it's not that we want kids to feel that they're 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 special in the sense that they're better than other people Right. But they're, they're special in the sense that they're unique, as we all are. Mm-hmm. They're unique people, and I think that from a developmental point of view, it, it's it's really healthy. And as they get a little bit older, having a sense that this is their own life, that 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 that, mm-hmm. that they are, they get to make choices. That they have some direction about their own life. That what they think matters is hugely important for developing mental health. It's hugely important for developing internal motivation. And hugely important for making decisions that uh, turn out more positively and constructively. And well, you know, one of one of the our uh, the chapters in our self driven child uh-huh. is about is about the, the wisdom of encouraging kids to make their own decisions and requiring teenagers to make the important decisions about their own life. Yeah. And the idea is being how, how do you how do you become a good decision maker? Right. Well, you 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 make decisions and you say, "How did that go?" Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. You know, you said, "Did that work?" And what 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 do I need to tweak? And yeah. it turns out that even little kids, if 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 they'll talk to people who know more about a certain situation than they do, because they want their life to work, 
they can make good decisions for themselves. And I'm not saying that five-year-olds should divide, decide everything or, right. or that, that a 16-year-old should make all the decisions for their family. But I do think by, the, by with adolescence, the best message you can give them besides I, I, I love you more than anything <laughs> is that I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have a ton of practice doing that before you leave home. <laughs> love it. Yes. That's how it, you know, and, and we know... You know, that the great neuroscientist Antonio Damasio discovered years ago that, that the idea that we make our best decisions rationally by putting our feelings aside is completely untrue. Mm-hmm. That the people who have, who have lesions in, in parts of their brain, they really can't access their feelings. They can't decide what to have for breakfast, where to go to eat. They can't make the mm-hmm. simplest decisions because decisions are, are rooted in emotion. I mean, what kids be paying attention to their own feelings when they're making decisions? Mm-hmm. So but my angle is, is that even, even little kids, with little kids, you don't give them these 10 choices. You say, do you want to do it this way or this way? Mm-hmm. Which outfit do you want to wear? Mm-hmm. Where again, it's, it's, it's practicing, tuning into the, what, what do I really want? Mm-hmm. But if you made this decision, how do you think it would go? It would get, it, it helping kids mm-hmm. become good decision makers, I think is just really, really important for them. And develop that habit. Yeah. Of making decisions. And that's, and that's, so I wanted to ask you, you are a clinical neuropsychologist. I can put those words together and come up with what that is, but I'd love to hear how you describe it. Yeah. So neuropsychologists are people are psychologists who know quite a bit about the brain and kind of how the brain is organized Mm -hmm. and how the brain produces thinking and feelings and and behavior and uh, like that. And so clinical neuropsychologists, what we do mainly for a living is we test because mm-hmm. we, we test people to figure out what's going right, what's going wrong. I myself, because I'm primarily a child and adolescent, young adult guy, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I see kids and teenagers and young adults, if they're having learning problems, they're having attention problems, they're having emotional problems, they can't get along with other kids, they can't make friends. I'm try- I, I do a diagnostic assessment and, and, and looking from... from it's organized around the way we know the brain is organized. So I'm, I'm assessing the functions we know the brain does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking at their, their various kinds of abilities, their learning, their emotions, their social skills, and trying to figure out, is, is, this, is there a learning disability here? Is there, an, is there an attention problem? Is there, an, mm-hmm. is there an anxiety disorder, a mood disorder? Is there autism here? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff that I deal with primarily. I mean, some neuropsychologists in hospitals they're assessing people who have epilepsy or um, various kinds of uh, neurological conditions. I see mainly kids who have learning problems or attention problems, social emotional problems. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, it's a test. We test. And when you say test, uh, it's not fill in this box or do this. I mean, what is the testing? So uh, we we can test of intellectual abilities where we're we're asking kids to define oh. words or looking at their verbal reasoning ability. We do a pretty wide assessment of their language, their language comprehension, their ability to express themselves, their memory for language, their ability to pay attention. There's tests of ability to pay attention, the stuff that's not very interesting. Uh-huh. So kind of various kinds of planning, organizational skills, academic testing, reading, writing, and math. We ask them to, to fill out measures that uh, look at their at, at anxiety and, and mood problems and social problems. And we do a lot of interviewing, just talking with kids about their life uh-huh. to try to figure out what's what's going right and what's going wrong and how to help them. Uh-huh. 
I mean, it sounds kind of clinical and sterile, but knowing you a little bit as I do as a very heart-centered, intelligent man, I'm sure it, the interactions aren't like that and the kids don't feel like they're a specimen in front of you. No, I mean, I, I, that, 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 no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very kid friendly thing, uh-huh. you know, and I think kids for the most part, kids like it. It's, it's, it's for the most part, it's pretty enjoyable. It's a little, t- they get tired after the, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, but, but yeah, for yeah. the most part, they, they, they like it. And yeah. uh, cause there's a lot of challenging and interesting stuff. Cool. Um, but but having kind of a map of, of what kids can do, what's what 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 comes easily what comes easily to them, yes. what, what's harder for them, if yes. there's stuff they're struggling with, um is really a very useful thing. Of course, of course. Um I was wondering, okay, so there's so many questions I want to ask you, but you talk about a healthy sense of a, a strong sense of control in a child's life equating that with self-motivation and and they have to be they come together and so is there a, a one before the other or do they grow together or how well i think that i when, when my co-author ned johnson and i were yes. working on our first book the self-driven child yes um it, we we decided to structure it around this idea of how important it is for kids to have a sense of control over their own lives for two main reasons one is that a low, having a low sense of control, it's the most stressful thing you can experience. Yeah. You can be in a, in a new situation or something that's completely unpredictable, or even something that's threatening. Yeah. But if you have the sense that I know how to handle this, or I'm confident I can handle this, it's uh-huh. not that stressful. Uh-huh. It's when something stressful is threatening to you or your kid or, or your family, and you don't know what to do about it. The doctor doesn't know what to do. There's nothing more terrifying. Yes. I mean, a situation you have, so we also know increasingly that a low sense of control is associated with all the anxiety disorders, with mood disorders, and it actually looks like the active ingredient of, of, of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is so effective for anxiety and depression, is increases the sense of control. Mm-hmm. So the sense of control mm-hmm. is hugely important for mental health, which is part of what we why we emphasize it so strongly in our books, both mm-hmm. our books, really. Mm-hmm. And and the second reason is that every place we look to try to understand how do kids become self motivated, mm-hmm. where they have that that healthy internal drive mm-hmm. to develop themselves, because mm-hmm. some of the kids that I see, they aren't good students, and they, and they figure, what's the point of trying? I don't give a mm-hmm. shit, you know, and, mm-hmm. and like that. And some of the kids that my my co my my co author is a test prep guy. He's a brilliant test prep guy, and he sees all these really highly anxious, driven, obsessive kids mm-hmm. who. they'd sacrifice anything to go to Yale. Mm. And it's just not healthy and it's not sustainable. Yep. And so we, we, every place we looked at, how do you develop that kind of healthy self-drive to develop yourself? So you have something useful to offer this world. Yeah. And and it's not, you know, uh, you you aren't just jumping through hoops. You aren't just doing it to build a resume. Every place we looked needed to understand that all the arrows pointed in the direction of autonomy. And our, our North Star... Ned's in my North Star for thinking about motivation is called called self-determination theory. And self-determination theory is one of the better supported theories of all the psychology. It's about 30 years old. And it holds that to to have that internal motivation, you have to have three needs met. One's for a sense of relatedness, connectedness. We're more more motivated to to do stuff, to, to work for a teacher that we like 
or a coach that, that, that believes in this. So it's relatedness. It's a sense of competence. You, you don't, you don't, if you really suck at something, you don't feel like we're that hard on it typically. And autonomy. And when we were working on the book, we interviewed uh, Edward D.C., who's one of the two guys who made up the self-determination theory, has done hundreds of studies on it. And we said, our sense is that autonomy is probably the most important. And he said, absolutely. If you're getting to lean on one, it's the autonomy. Mm-hmm. And almost so, most of the research has focused on what they call autonomy support, the benefits for teachers supporting and parents, supporting autonomy in kids. Mm-hmm. And it's so beneficial. Mm-hmm. And so, we, but mm-hmm. also, are you familiar, Nini, with uh, Carol Dweck's mindsets? Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, uh, Carol Dweck basically thinks about kids having a growth mindset, which is that I get better through my own efforts. Right. If I'm not very good at something, I just keep trying to get better. Right. Uh, or a fixed mindset, which is that I'm born with a certain amount of ability. Right. There's not much I can do about it. So basically, my main my main goal is to not do very much, not not challenge myself very much, so nobody sees that I'm, I'm not that talented. Uh-huh. And, and so I, uh-huh. I we just figured a growth mindset, it's a sense of control. I can get better through my own efforts. That's right. I'm not, I'm not helpless. That's right. We we, we looked at at, um, at at flow theory, the, 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 that flow experience where you can become deeply engaged in something, and and so the point where you can be you can be really you could be playing basketball or creating art or, or having sex or you can be playing music, do something where it, it, it seems like 15 minutes has gone by. You've actually been doing it for an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, like that. That kind of experience, um, one of the researchers that we really like, Reed Larson, says that experience in children is what creates self-motivated adolescents and adults. And that you can't get, that flow of experiences only comes when you feel like I'm directing myself. I'm, I'm, in, control, I'm, in, I'm in control of this. Nobody's making me do this. Right. And so every place we look to understand how do kids develop that healthy self, self-motivation? Yes. yes. Every arrow pointed in the direction of autonomy. autonomy. This is my life. Yes. So that, that that's and so that that's where that goes, and that's how, that's how I mean. Some kids come out of the womb. You know, I, I have I have two granddaughters, and one, you know, goes to to, to gymnastics. They both they both like gymnastics, and the older one is just just kind of just driven. She's kind of just just loves it, and with, with her four, four and a half hour practices aren't long enough. She yeah. just loves working hard, and the younger one. <laughs> Little, there's a longer one. He comes out of practice. That's a great practice. We had 15 minutes of free time where he's got to play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're different. However, yeah. Yeah. again, you can't make part, part of our premise about motivation is you can't make somebody want what they don't want. Yeah. And you can't make them not want what they want. Yeah. And we know that the use of rewards and punishments uh, and just, uh. just undermines internal motivation. Oh. So this, this, they're really the key is not trying to make kids do stuff. Yes. It's trying to find out what kids really want to do and, and, and kind of support, and go and use, the, use their energy, the things that, that, that attract them that, that, and support that sense of autonomy. That's what really develops that healthy self-motivation. Right. And also identify their, uh, draw out their problem-solving skills. Even that's, about... important. that's important too. Yeah. Because then that builds so much autonomy. Yeah, and, and it builds that sense of competence as well. You know, yeah, they, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and the, challenge, the challenge in our culture, especially as kids get older, is we focus you know, 90% of the energy on, on competence, on their achievements. Yeah. And, and it, it, in ways that oftentimes interfere with our relationships with kids and oftentimes undermine yes. their, their, their sense of, of, of autonomy. 
uh, in ways that just are, are not healthy and not productive, and they're counterproductive all the time. Exactly. And I wanted to talk to you more about that. How are we getting in the way of this? How, how, how are we diminishing children's oh. natural tendency to become more autonomous? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, that part of it is that um, we have the perception that the world is much more dangerous than it used to be. Um, and, and we're actually most of most people uh, around the world are living at the safest time in human history. Um, and, and, and yet we have the perception that you know, if, if you have your kids, your kids are playing outside, there's something that's going to kidnap them, even though that, that the kids being kidnapped by a stranger, that doesn't happen anymore now than it used to. And most likely if kids get kidnapped, it's by parents, it's by the divorced parent. Right. And, but we have the perception because, because it's in the media so much that yeah. the world is just more threatening, there's more threat. And also I think that, uh, we have the sense that. Uh, in certain parts of the country, the academic achievement is the most, by far, where you go to college is the most important thing, the outcome of your, of your childhood and adolescence, which is completely nuts. Yeah. But it's very prevalent. It's very prevalent all over the world now, this yeah. crazy idea. Yeah. That we're, and I was talking to these, to these high school student leaders in Houston uh, before the pandemic about, about our book. And, um, and I said, how many of you want to be um, how, how many of you want to be happy as adults? And this one kid kind of sheepishly raised his hands. Well, I, 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 they all sheepishly raised their hand and they said, duh, okay, kind of, you know, we all do. Yeah. I said, what do you understand it takes to be happy as an adult? Uh -huh. And this one kid said that we understand that if we get, if we get into a good enough college, everything is set. Uh -huh. Which if you look at the mental health problems, uh -huh. the most elite colleges, they're just off the wall. There's just an article in the Washington Post the other day about how Yale encourages suicidal students, to, basically tries to force them to, to drop out of school. Uh, maybe for mental health reasons, maybe because they don't want the stigma of, of, of being associated with right. people that can, kids make suicide, you know. Right. But the mental health problems in colleges are, including the most elite college, are absurd. Sure. That they're off the charts. And yeah. is, is this really what we want? This kind of crazy idea. Right. Because in our new book, we have a chapter on talking with kids about, about the pursuit of happiness, because mm -hmm. there's a woman at Yale by the, uh, by the name of, she's a psychology professor by the name of Lori Santos. You know that work? I, I do not know. So, so, so she, she lived with undergraduates at Yale, and she's a professor, uh, but she also lived in residential college with, with um, these undergraduates at Yale. And what she was struck by was that they gotten themselves into arguably the, the, the most prestigious university in the world. Uh -huh. And they, they were miserable. Yeah. She was struck by how unhappy they were. So yeah. she started teaching a course on the science of happiness, which, which very quickly became the most, most uh, popular course in the history of 300 year history of Yale University. Whoa. These kids are desperate to find out that getting into Yale didn't make me happy. That didn't do it. Well, yeah. What is it? And, it and we, 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 we talk about um, this formula for happiness that developed by the guy who started the whole field of positive psychology, studying actually studying happy people instead of studying misery all the time, yeah. study happy people and so what yes. they're what they're like. Yes. The formula is is it, it, the acronym is PERMA, P-E-R-M-A, and it's it's positive emotion, which is part of it, and it's it's deep engagement, uh, that, that that flow experience. Deep that, engagement. That, yeah, that, yeah, that's the E, the engagement, and yes. that, that, that passion yes. engagement. Stuff. Yes. It's relationships, yes. it's yes. meaning, and it's achievement, 
your accomplishment. And so the achievement is part of that, but it's oh. only 20, it's only 20%. And I think kids grow up these days and parents, many parents think that the achievement is 90%. Yeah. That's what they want for the kids. So, so, yeah. that, um, so I know best, I, I have to, I have to be on you all the time, make sure you're doing your schoolwork, make sure you're getting those B's up to A's. Um, we, I think, I think, so that's part of it. Also, there's a really interesting guy by the name of Peter Gray, who's, who studies play. You know, you know, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I was reading this article uh, uh, while we were working on our first book. And he's saying, look, we know that there's been this huge increase in anxiety and depression over the last you know, 20, 30 years. We also know that there's been a, a, a corresponding decrease in sense of control. He said, what's the key? He said, in, in his opinion, the, the key is the kids don't play anymore. That, that instead, of, instead of the, the kid-directed play yeah. that you and I probably did as kids, you, you got on a yeah. Saturday and, and, and sure. you could come back you know, at dinner time and your parents had no idea what you're doing because you're creating it, you're creating the whole day yourself. And now things are so structured for kids. We're so, we're so, there's we're so, so much supervision that they don't have a really chance to kind of to run their own life for a day, you know, yeah. even. Yeah. Uh, make, their, make, make those kind of decisions. So I think it's and, complicated. And, and to use their imagination. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And, yeah. and I think that we, that we know that the more anxious we are, the more controlling we are of our kids. Yeah. And I think that, that also that, that, that the anxiety in adults is off in parents is off the charts. Yeah. Um, and w- w- when we get more controlling, our anxiety goes down, but it makes our kids more anxious. Uh, so yeah, but yeah. I think it's complicated. Yeah. Yes, it's very complicated. But but it's it's but part of what we're trying to do is make help parents and educators understand not only that it's right to really support this autonomy and controlling kids, but it's safe to do it. It's, it's safe to do it. Yeah. Even you know, so, uh, I mean, I my parents didn't go to college, and and so I I got a PhD, and somebody kind of figured it out. And I didn't need my parents to be quarterbacking everything and be right. kind of making my decisions for me. I didn't. Right. Need that. I figured it out. Right. Even though, even though I was a C plus student in high school, uh-huh. um, you know. So, yeah. Um, and, and I, I think the kids are so confident if we really um, trust, if we trust them, if we entrust them with responsibilities. This is the thing, you know. I was a teacher for all the grades K through twelve. Yeah. And and and. And I remember as a child myself feeling so disregarded and disrespected. I wouldn't use those words, but just so frustrated, you know, that what I care about and what I understand is completely disregarded. It just, so I never wanted to do that to the kids in my care. Yeah. And, and so um, I, I really paid attention to my students and, you know, I mean, you just have to pay, you don't have to agree with them, but, but to really, focus in when they're explaining or describing or professing their point of view. And so I think that listening skills and attention skills for adults is such a critical skill that needs to be developed for them. Do you have any guidance in those directions? Yeah. Great. Our, our first, um, our, our, our second book, which is called, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress tolerance in a happy home wow. came out in, in August of 2021, wow. and our, our actually our agent said, "I want you to write a book about communicating with kids. You're so good at this, and just parents are desperate to know what do you say and how, how do you talk to kids." 
And there hasn't really been a really great book, I think, written about this since at least 30 years. So um, we wrote this book and we realized that the, the, the thesis of, our, of our, our first book, which is still kind of our mission, really, is, is that yeah. supporting a sense of control in kids may be the most important thing we can do other than just loving them unconditionally. Right. But also we thought, if we're going to talk about communication, we've got to focus on the primary function of it. It's building, it's building connection. Yes. It's building relationship. Yes. And so we, we and that's a two way street. Completely. And, and yeah. we, we, we ask a bunch of uh, uh, older children and teenagers, we, we did these little focus groups. And one of the questions we asked them was, who do you feel closest to on this planet? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes as a parent, Mm-hmm. As, as, as equally often, often it was an aunt or an uncle or an older cousin mm-hmm. or an older brother or a coach or a teacher. And we said, then we said, what is it about this person yeah. that makes you feel close to them? Yeah. And almost invariably, Nini, they said something like, they listen to me without judging me and they don't tell me what to do. And, and we, the, we know that the keys yeah. to yeah. really feeling close yeah. are empathy and validation. And so when you when you listen respectfully and you say, okay, so what you're saying is, and we, we, we let them know, kind of feedback, let them know we're yeah. trying to understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I, okay, I, I can see that perspective. We validate it. You know, that, that's not crazy. Okay. And even if we feel different, then we can, we can still say, yeah, you know, I, I see it a little differently. If you want to hear it, I'll, right. I'll, I'll run it by you. Yes. You know, like, like that. Right. But, I, but, but, but in our new book, I mean, this, this is where we start which is this is really the most important thing we can do is develop a close relationship with our kids because a close relationship with, the, with a parent is as close as you can get to a silver bullet protecting kids against emotional problems as they get older. Yeah. And we know, and, and because I'm in private practice, and most of the kids that I work with, the families are, up, are middle class, upper middle class, and we know that kids of affluent families who are in high achieving schools yeah. They're at much higher risk yeah. for anxiety disorders, mood disorders, substance use disorders, even until, through, through, until at least until the mid twenties, um, than, than middle class kids are. Mm-hmm. And the hypotheses are it's, it's the excessive pressure to excel mm-hmm. that, that, that is so stressful for them mm-hmm. and, and creates all these problems. And mm-hmm. secondly, is that kids in, in affluent families don't feel as close to their parents as middle class mm-hmm. because often mm-hmm. they're very busy and and, and um, and so they feel a lot of demand, but not as much support and closeness. And so we're we're writing and lecturing about that. It's just it's what you're saying, that importance of connection, of feeling close and mm-hmm. list and being good listeners mm-hmm. and letting kids know that I'm listening, I'm trying to understand. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, even if I disagree with it, it's not crazy. I can see I just said it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We all want that. And uh... uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> little kids too and they when they see little kids you know the four and five-year-olds when they see that you're actually listening and just quietly completely taking them in for 30 seconds they just all of them is there with you all of them it is so beautiful instead of feeling like you know you're doing something and then um you're going "Uh uh-huh uh-huh it's a whole other world of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just ha- having, <laughs> really sharing our attention with them and, and yeah. uh, it's it huge. And yeah. t- taking seriously w- what they say. Yeah. E- even if they don't agree, huge. 
And what's fun, I mean, and, and I'm not lecturing people so much because heaven knows, especially with my own kids, but not so much with my students because I was on duty then, you know, but, yeah, yeah. but, uh, but I know that with in school sometimes, because there's so much going on that, um, that I would do that. I would be the uh-huh, uh-huh parent, you know, and um, I feel sad about that to this day because mm. I know that they were wasted opportunities. Wow. You know, for and, and I have tons of love and connection with my kids, but those moments—they were wasted moments, and they—they they don't have to be that way if we if we really understand how important each of those moments are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I I think that um, the um, John and Julie Gottman are, are mm-hmm. uh, uh, University of Washington have studied relationships, particularly marriages, for for years and mm-hmm. tried to figure out what what makes good marriages mm-hmm. you know and they talk about um you know, that the way you, part, part of being close is is that you pay attention to the subtle emotional changes in in in, mm-hmm. in people mm-hmm. and my wife who, I, to whom i've been married for 46 years mm-hmm. I, I if i if i'm just thinking about something she said are you okay <laughs> you know because i'm i'm never really upbeat if i'm just even yeah. thinking about something she, yeah. she'll notice these subtle shifts that, sure. that uh, and and i think that that's why Arguably, one of the one of the best tools that we have to, to feel close to our kids is spending time alone with them, because mm-hmm. that, that way we can really you can really that that's really how you get to know somebody. You know, yeah. how you feel, so is feel, feel, uh, spending time alone. And yeah. I, I read this when my kids were very little, and so I said to them, "There's 168 hours in a week, but if I can't find one for you and one for you." <laughs> that something's wrong with this picture. And I want to find an hour each week with, with, yeah. with, with each one of you because that's how you really get to know, it's how you get really get to know each other. We stay connected. My, I love family time, but I also want to be alone with you. Uh-huh. And so I had private time, you know, every Sunday afternoon, one with one, with one and then the other from the time that they're probably three until mm-hmm. they, left for, they left for college. Uh-huh. You know, what we did change, you know, but we tried to do something that was mutually enjoyable. We can just enjoy doing it, but just... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, for discouraged kids, just saying, I want to spend time alone with you, that um, is, is a really good thing. It's a really good thing. And it's so simple um, because, first of all, there probably is no agenda, really, for how, there's no way to even predict how you'll connect or you'll how, what you'll notice in someone in that quiet alone time. Right, but right. I, but I'm immediately jumping to the major portion of the listeners to this podcast is early childhood educators who has a room full of little ones. Do you have any kind of <laughs> guidance for them in those situations, you know? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, it's interesting that I just found out a couple of weeks ago that the self-driven child uh, has sold mo- more than two million copies in China. Yes, and um, and wow. China is the only foreign foreign publisher that asked us to write a special introduction about why a book on on a, on a sense of control, a sense of autonomy, why 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 that be relevant to such a different culture, a yes. culture that's more communitarian and and more authoritarian, and um and 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 basically what I said is that this stuff the stuff that's in this book. It just applies to virtually. It, may, it applies to rodents, you know. If, if, <laughs> if you got, and and mammal, if you got a stress response and you got a prefrontal cortex, this stuff applies to you. And so the thing about um, 
think about you know early childhood educators have always given kids free time they, they respected that choice that decision making you know they, they, they have free yeah. choice time yeah yeah I, I used to be in, I, I was in early childhood education before I became a psychologist uh-huh. and um, <laughs> I taught full-time in, 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 in early childhood special ed for a year and I, I had a headache every Monday because I couldn't manage a group of kids, even even little kids. I couldn't manage a group, so I got out. Of, I had to get out of teaching and find an easier career. <laughs> I, I, I have great respect for 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 yes. uh, for competent early childhood. Yes, 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 yes. I was not one, but um, but I think that, that, that this stuff applies. That this stuff about autonomy. I, mean, I, I was I was lecturing about our book, and a guy came up to me and said, "I just completed my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on autonomy, supporting autonomy in two year olds." And 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 the the idea that you're that you're that that you are I treat you as a unique person, you know, and, and that that being so important from a developmental point of view, and so I, I think with li- with with little kids, just as just as you're saying, li- li- listening to them carefully, and if you don't have time, say I, this is really important to me, but I got to mm-hmm. do something now. Let, 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 I want to come back and ask you about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you just listen carefully to to them, at least you know that you're trying to. That you give them choices, you treat them like they have a brain in their head, you know, and and, um, which, and they do, that, which they do, which they do, which which they do, uh, and so I'm just thinking about the the the, the chapters in our book, you know, the um, the this, the first chapter in self-driven child is about why a sense of control is such a big deal, and the second chapter is called I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. Now, homework's not <laughs> homework's not so relevant in early childhood education, yeah. but the the idea is that um, you can't make a kid do something, and you can't make as I said with motivation, you can't make them want what they want. And I, I see all these families early in my career, Nini, who would say, "Well, I dread dinner time because after dinner it's like World War Three trying to get yeah. my kid to do his homework." Yeah, and so I'd I'd say. Just tell them I love you too much to fight with you about yeah. this, you know. And and um, it, but I'm, I'm willing to help you in any way I can. I'm willing to sit with you while you do it. I'm willing to, to, to a tutor if you need me. I'm willing to get a tutor. But I love you're the most precious thing in the universe to me. I don't I don't want to fight with you about this. And also, if I act like I, I could somehow make you, I couldn't make you do this. And you know, like so, the, the the premise that that. This idea we're, we're consultant. We're helping help kids figure out what works for them and what doesn't work, and what, while we while we teach and while we model. But as they get older, this consultant idea is where mm-hmm. the goal is. I'm going to help you figure out how, how to run your own life. I'm going to help you figure out what kind of life you want, so you can be creating a life that you want. And with little kids, you know, we start out again. We start by giving them choices. We start out by not by in in, um, in our new book. We, we talk about the language of a parent consultant. Which is wow. two, two two components. One is we get buy-in. Now, rather than telling kids a million times, we say, you know, I got an idea about that. Can I run it by you? Mm-hmm. You know, just I wonder what would happen if you did it this way. Or what I say a lot with kids is, you know, for whatever it's worth. And then I'll say, because I, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not trying to force this down your throat. So so I'm trying to get buy-in rather than just saying the same thing over and over again. Right. And secondly. It's, 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 it's taking force off the table. Yes. One, a guy who I really respect, uh, really respect his work, his name is Ross Green. Oh, yes. You know Ross Green? Oh, so, yes. The explosive child guy. And yes. 
So one of the things he says is even with the most, this came out of working with the most difficult, resistant, angry kids. Yes. Say to them, I'm not going to try to use the force of my will to get you to do things. And I think that um, so you take force off the table. When, 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 my, when my kids were little, if they'd fight me, and I wanted to do something, they'd fight me, and I'd say, wait a minute. You're acting like, I think I could make you do that. I couldn't make you do that. I mean, all you'd have to, if I tried to make you do that, all you'd have to do is flop on the floor, or you'd start screaming, or you could pee in your pants. But I, I couldn't make you do this. I'm not going to try. And then so I kind of, yeah. I said, say, well, you know, but you know, if you if you make it really give me a hard time about it, you know, it'll. I may not feel like you know reading as long on tonight as, as I usually do. I don't. I don't know. That's kind of how it goes. And then we have a kind of conversation. They they always come along, but I, I but taking force off the table. And I and I say this in part because one of the persons who trained me, and I didn't realize it at the time, in early childhood, was a very experienced preschool teacher. By the time the time I got to her. She was she was kind of end of her career. And she was an alcoholic, and she would really Whoa. try to force the kids. Whoa! Sometimes kind pick them up and move them. And, Whoa! Uh, yeah, and I and I, this kind of, and this was this is an experimental preschool at the University of Washington. You know, these are uh, um, and uh, a lot of high high quality education in many ways. But it's not, uh. I, I just retrospect somebody who really tried to use force. And I think that with with young children, I, we just recognizing that force doesn't work. You know, that um, it I might think, work short time, but it's yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there, there's I mean, certain. Ways. I hear you. I hear you. With yeah, some and, kids, it might work short, time, but go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and, and I think that um, you know this idea that you really can't make somebody do something against their will, and sometimes sometimes they get pushback on it. I mean, it's, well, somebody say, "Well, but my, my kid, you know, if he doesn't want to uh, get in the car, I, I just put him in the car." Yeah. I say, is she who's getting in the car? She's not getting in the car. You're you're putting her in the car. She's not doing. It. And I say, you really can't make. I, I actually, uh, our uh, the, the editor of her first book lo lo loves the book, and but her husband is a real command and control kind of guy, and she said he doesn't buy this stuff. And I said, well, he doesn't buy the idea. You can't make somebody do something. Well, look, if you, I say if your kids won't eat. What's he going to do? Put the food in their mouth and move their lips, move, move their jaws? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what he does. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. but, but my, my point is that you really can't make somebody do something no. against their will. Yeah. So, so that we look for the, the, these internal ways of, of um, so, so supporting development, supporting motivation. We, we, we work to do, build connection and, and, and that relatedness with kids. We support their autonomy. And ideally, we don't give into this bullshit about teaching academic stuff to young children. Yeah, it's so. I mean, I I personally think that the worst mistake made in American education since since I've been doing this stuff is trying to teach kids in first grade. We used to teach them in second grade, or trying to teach kids mm -hmm. in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Kindergartens now are often like the worst. We used to be the worst first grades. And, and and getting rid of play, getting rid of recess, mm -hmm. because we we've known since nineteen at least since the mid nineteen seventies, the best time to teach a kid to read is age seven. That's the most efficient time to teach a kid to read. And we know that in Finland, which which commonly has the best outcome, educational outcomes in the world, they wait until they're, they're seven to teach them academic stuff. And so I, I just encourage early childhood educators to resist this tendency, with this crazy idea that if we start them earlier, they'll be better at it. There's right. no evidence for that at all. And right. if we deprive them of play, right. we try to teach them to read, 
it's just a huge disservice to kids. Right. And that doesn't mean not reading to them and not enriching reading. their lives in that way. Oh, reading to them is incredible. And yes. I, 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 I read to my kids well, well into the, probably to high school at least. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, oh, I think it's great. And it turns out that the same brain systems do language, do language comprehension where the language is written or oral. So kids are actually, when they're listening to be, when you're reading to them, they're developing structures in their brain yes. that later will do reading comprehension. Yes. Once, once, they, once, they, once they can read the words. Yes. Read the yes. You, de you develop a reading brain in part by, 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 re by reading to them. Yes. Yes. That whole language, uh, neuronal pathways and all of that. No, yeah. the brain science of all of this is so uh, it's so important to really understand that we're not just talking some nice theory and let's try this out for a while. This is brain science about not learning, teaching to read until seven, because the brain, yeah. I'm sure you, whatever the parts are yeah. and all that, but yeah, it's. Well, and also, I mean, but part of the, part of the reason that boys are doing so poorly now uh, in, in, in our culture um, and is that by the time they're six, boys' language development is about a year behind girls. Yep. Their self-control, their attention span, their impulse control are, are, are about a year behind girls. So boys, and, and Scandinavian schools, used, at least they used to start school uh, schooling for, for boys at seven, girls at six, because they're more advanced. But, but part of the reason that, that girls are so outperforming boys is girls have naturally, I mean, so, so much, most of what they learn in school is language-based. And they're, they're way ahead in language. They're way ahead, they have much better attention spans, much better self-control, much higher boredom tolerance, much, high, much higher desire to please the teacher. Right. And so, and so, but now that we're taking the shackles off girls, they're, they're way overperforming boys yeah. um, in, in, in most ways. And I think yeah. that we could help boys by not getting them off to such a rocky start, by 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 trying to teach them stuff before they're developmentally ready to do it. And does your book, the self-driven child, or one of your other books, delineate those? There's a chapter uh, in the self-driven child called "Taking a Sense of Control to School," and one of the mm -hmm. one of the segments in that chapter is is about exactly what we're talking about. Mm. Is this the, the craziness of of trying to teach kids at younger and younger ages. And it's interesting mm -hmm. that I'm sure probably most early childhood people know the name of Jean Piaget. Mm -hmm. And you know, Piaget uh, studies his own kids and, and, and hypothesizes that kids' development proceeds in these invariant in uh, stages and they're kind of they're biologically programmed. And you kind of have to wait for that they kind of go through it at their own pace. Mm -hmm. And he, he referred to the American question. And they, because when he comes to America, the American question. American, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, okay. so, so he, yeah. he, he, he comes to America. And he talked yeah. about these stages, the, the, yeah. the nature's timetable. And the American question was, how do we make the, How do we make this go faster? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? And I think that the idea yeah. of trying to rush development, the yeah. idea that if we can rush development, kids will be better. And the same kind of thinking is, if, if, we, if we don't, if we don't, kids don't feel pressured and pushed all the time, they won't fulfill the potential. This thinking is crazy. Because suppose the motivation can we can just motivate from externally. Well, well yeah, and you know, that something something that would take you, something that would, would take you a year to learn at age six 
when you're eight, you learn it in a month. Right. You learn so much more efficiently as you get older. Right. And the idea, and also being chronically stressed and pressured is terrible for the brain. Yeah. Uh, it just put, puts kids, it just ratches up their risk for anxiety disorders, depression, substance use, all that stuff. And the health, yeah. I mean. Oh, yeah. physical health as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm very happy that you brought that up about America because that's come into my questions uh, several times i didn't want to interrupt you though but i mean it's just so clear how in america we we and we have that reputation for <laughs> i i i know it's just this you know, kind of hyper competitiveness and, and yeah uh and it's 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 every place that they try it's just I, I hardly ever see a kid anymore who can hold a pencil properly because mm-hmm. kids are, are learning to write now they write their name when they're four and until you're six or seven, mm. if you're a boy, probably more like seven, you don't have strong enough connections between your brain mm-hmm. and the small muscle of your finger mm-hmm. to do this, mm-hmm. to manipulate a, a pen or a pencil with your fingers. Uh-huh. So what you do is you do with your wrist uh-huh. or your, your whole arm, uh-huh. or, or you start to uh-huh. you hold the pencil like this. Uh-huh. Uh, and I hardly ever see a kid who has a typical pencil grip anymore, Yeah, uh, which really interferes with the, the ability to, to write kind of automatically and, and, and write comfortably. Uh, and just, you don't have the circuitry. Re- really, kids don't have the circuitry to, to really become good readers until they're, they're a little bit older. And so we just create more failure that way. So I, I don't, I don't, it's just, yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't want to stay in the soapbox forever. But, yeah. no, uh, I, but I do feel that if we respected development more, yes. it would solve so yes. many of our educational yes. and, and, and emotional problems. Right, right, right. I mean, I did kind of want to get into some of the, the unnecessary problems that, are being caused by making wrong decisions that you know are well intentioned for sure, but they're not helping, and we need to understand that they're not helping and why they're not helping. Yeah. So, yes. When I, when I was in graduate school, uh, you know, in, in studying the kind of mid seventies, um, that people studied were, were studying they studied readiness. Uh-huh. Readiness being when when's the kid really when's the best time to teach a kid something. Uh-huh. And now you, you now all you ever hear is is how early can we get them to do it? I mean, they, they don't uh-huh. they don't look for that 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 sweet spot, okay? Uh-huh. Because you know, in, in early childhood, you, you could have a curriculum. Uh, if you if you had a, a, a Montessori school, you could start kids learning to ride a bike when they're three. And by the time that, and have a little curriculum, but by the time they're six, most of them be riding a bike. If you just wait till they're six. Most of them be riding the bike in a, you know, within two weeks, you know, just yeah. like that. Yes. So I, I think that respecting yeah. kind of development and, the yeah. truth and, and and not being so afraid, it's, it's all based on fear. So mm-hmm. other, other other people are going to get ahead of our kids. Mm-hmm. So we got to try to boost them ahead. Mm-hmm. And where I live, Montgomery County, Maryland, mm-hmm. they wa- they wanted to make the, def- most kids for historically took algebra in ninth grade. So they wanted to move it down to eighth grade so the most kids can get the calculus in high school. And even even though most people, most adults don't use anything beyond sixth grade math in their, their daily lives, their mm-hmm. professional lives, and then mm-hmm. the idea, this crazy idea that we've got to get everybody taking calculus. What they found after a few years of this is that like eighty five percent of the kids taking algebra in, in the eighth grade couldn't pass their finals. So the solution was not to bump it back up to ninth grade. The solution was to not give finals. <laughs> so I mean, this so, okay. I've made the point. We respect development. We do better. 
respect development yeah and so then that's listening that's um it's respecting human nature yeah. you know it's respecting oh gosh and it it just makes everybody so much life for everybody so much easier and more fun because when yeah. you can just watch that whole child unfold and each of the students unfold according to their physiology, their predilections and everything. Well, it's true. And when you, I mean, arguably the most important, we're talking about the brain, arguably the most important thing that I've learned, the most useful thing to me that I've learned about the brain was in the, um, the early 90s, when a study came out that showed there, there's this very rapid development in the prefrontal cortex, which, yeah. which does the executive functions, right? All the purposeful behavior, the, the conscious thinking, the planful, the goal-directed behavior. Yep. Between seventeen and twenty. Yep. And <laughs> and I, I could give you back in the early nineties, I started giving people hope. You know, your kid's going to be he's going to go through this dramatic maturation, yeah. even, even into early, young adulthood. Yeah. And we, and we know now that the cognitive functions of the prefrontal cortex aren't fully mature until 25 plus minus three. And the emotional regulation functions aren't fully mature until 32 plus minus three. And so when I realized that, I, mean, I got a birthday card. I got a, I, mean, I got a Christmas card two, two years ago um, from this family. And on the outside, it said, you were right. And I opened the card. And there's a picture of these three young adults with their spouses. And the, and, and the, the, the parents had written in, they all turned out great. Oh. And th these were kids who I followed from the time that they were kids, to, in, 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 most of them into kind of first year of college um, uh, back in the 90s, in early early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And they were all a hot mess at one point. Right. I remember the older one, um, one of them had drug problems. The older one flunked out of college a couple of times. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a successful attorney now. Oh, and yeah. I just, the, the idea is, is that I don't want kids to be bored. I, which which it means I, I don't want, but I don't want them to be chronically pushed and chronically stressed cool. because so much of the development is brain development. Yes. You know, I tell people, you know, that, that kids can have trouble with writing. I said, in fifth grade, I said, you, know, you can work on this 10 hours a day. It's not going to get much better than if you work on it for a half hour a day because the brain can't change that. Yeah. So much of, of, of what kids are able to do is a function of brain development, which yeah. is why it's crazy to try to just push them and push them. Right, right, right. Um, so just for fun, let's yeah. imagine a world in which today's youth grew up with the recommendations and guidance that you provide in your book. What kind of a world do you see? What kind of a country and a world do you see? Well, you know, I, I think that um, in, in our, the, what, the kind of things that we talk about in the self-driven child include everything's based on this idea of a sense of control being that, that the guy. So kids, people having a sense of autonomy, this is my yes. life yes. that I'm not helpless. I'm not hopeless. I'm not stuck. I'm not trapped. I'm not overwhelmed all the time. I'm not extremely anxious all the time. I don't and have so, to follow instructions all the time. And there's not yeah. always an outside authority. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and the way yeah. we think about Nini is we think about the sense of control as two dimensions in two dimensions. One is that subjective sense of, of autonomy, autonomy or agency, which is so highly correlated with, with, with virtually everything that's good for you. The second mm -hmm. is the brain state that supports that. Because you think about it, 
if, if, if you're anxious, your thinking is out of control. You can be yeah. worrying about something and you want yes. those, you want those, that yeah. rumination to stop. You can't make it stop. It feels right. out of control. Right. If you're depressed, you have no sense of control. Right. And so, and we will, we know that the brain state that supports the sense of control is where the prefrontal cortex regulates the rest of the brain. And, and when you're, when you're in your right mind, meaning you're goal directed, you're, you're, you're involved in what you're doing. You aren't feeling unduly stressed. You're in the present, you're focused. Um, that your prefrontal cortex basically is regulating the rest of your brain, including mm -hmm. the amygdala and the other systems that yep. are involved in the stress response. Yep. What happens when you start to get stressed or, you, or you, you're too tired is your amygdala starts to become overly reactive, mm -hmm. starts to, to trigger your stress response too much, and basically starts to run the rest of your brain. Mm -hmm. and so it's the two, our, our two goals are to help kids develop that subjective sense of agency or autonomy. This is mm -hmm. your life. Mm -hmm. not it's not like this is your life buddy you know it, it, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it, it's like this is yeah. your life i respect that's the cool thing you, you get to create your own life yeah with my support yeah. and, and and the other side of it is i want you i want to do everything i can to help you stay in a brain state that allows you to have that sense of control because even if even if i support autonomy if you're exhausted all the time you're not going to feel in control you're going to you're going to have a low sense of control if you're stressed all the time right. same thing so we talk in our book what uh, about play you talk about radical downtime the radical downtime being the mm -hmm. idea that 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 because radical so, downtime i love it okay well, yes i mean because people say well my downtime is golfing or knitting yeah. and i think i think 20 or 30 years ago maybe that, that was great but because life is so fast-paced now yeah. because we're so underrested because technology creates so much creates so much work that we have the, the balance between rest and activity is just way out of whack and so we, we're, what we say in our book is that we need more radical downtime, meaning where it looks like you're doing nothing, but actually what you're doing is really good for your brain and your, 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 your development in general. And so it's sleeping. It's having some downtime to reflect on yourself, kind of daydreaming or mind wandering. And I, we're, we're big fans of meditation yeah. uh, and, and teaching kids to, to deeply relax their mind and their bodies. Yes. So coming come back to your initial question, uh, I, I think that if people implement implement the stuff in the self driven child, my guess is that we have a, there'd be a, a less stressed and less fearful world. Yeah. That 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 we get along with people better. We'd respect people's differences more because we wouldn't be so highly stressed, so highly competitive. I think that we, we we'd have more respect for individual people who are different from us. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we, you know, people are really well rested. When you're well rested, you, you just things in large perspective. You know, the idea that things look different in the morning because because you when you're well rested, you can just compute. You can put things in a broader context. And I think we, you know that, that radical downtime and 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 prioritizing mm -hmm. enough rest with, with enough you know, activity yeah. that we just spontaneously um, put things in larger perspective, so we're less fearful. We, we we don't we just go down the rabbit hole as easily um so and and i think what it takes is a critical mass of people who say i don't want to be i don't want to be on my kid all the time i don't want to be this fearful all the time yeah. i don't want to worry about my kid all the time and my, part of my message is that it's safe it's safe for you not to worry all the time it's safe for you not to try to be so controlling your kid yeah. your kid will actually turn out better 
but it's a little scary for you to sit on your hands and zip your lip at times, mm -hmm. but that's stressful for you. But for your kid, it's really good. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that part of the reason that our book is popular around the world is it just, you, you got a human nervous system, a sense of control is really good for everything. Mm -hmm. But a sense of control based on not that controlling mindset. No, but... no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, a sense of control doesn't mean right. I get to, I get to control everything. I'm right. supposed to control everything. Right. I'm the ball. It, it just means I'm not helpless. I'm not hopeless. I'm not stuck. I'm not resigned. I have options. I'm, I'm not overwhelmed. Right. I'm a problem right. solver. Right. Right. Yes. You know, and I'm I'm not a pawn of the universe. Right. You know, and uh, it, it, there's six years of research on what's called locus of control, mm -hmm. and an internal locus of control is um, I I I can make decisions. I can make the decisions that affect my own life. I'm not helpless. I'm not I'm not a pawn of the universe. An external is basically what kind of you know I, I'm I'm subject to all the forces in my world that are acting upon me. Not much I can do about it. And I think that, that um, we know that 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 healthy sense of control is is good for as I said mental health and motivation. But also people live longer. They, they have they, you give people in you give people in nursing homes choices about whether they have their 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 lunch at. 12 or, uh, or 12.30, or actually more about 10.30 or 11. But uh, the, <laughs> or, or you, or what time do you want your visitor to come? You give them simple choices like that. They live longer. Uh, oh. It's good for, for physical health, for longevity, yeah. Yeah. because the brain just works so much better. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just feel the truth of what you're saying so much. I just feel like I know when I wasn't allowed to make choices, it's just, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Well, you know, <laughs> and as, as kids get older too, I mean, the thing for me yeah. is that as I get older, yeah. I get more humble about mm. knowing what's in a kid's best interest. Mm. In part, because arguably the best thing that ever happened to me was when I flunked out of graduate school. Mm. Mm. And, and I, I went to, I, I was a doctoral student in English at Berkeley, uh, mm. right out of college. And I was just too anxious and insecure. Mm -hmm. I, did, I just I didn't, I didn't turn any work in for twenty quarter for twenty weeks and two quarters, and eventually flunked out. And I felt like my whole life had gone up in smoke. But I always felt like an imposter with, with literature students. I wasn't I'm not really a literary type. And 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 I really it took me two months to realize this is the what felt like a disaster is actually the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. And, and when I found psychology, I thought, oh, these are, these are my people. You know, the, the, this, I, I, this, this really, I can really relate to this comes easily to me. I like this yeah. a lot. And it's, so, I, I, I've been so fulfilled as a psychologist and, but it took flunking. And so yeah. the, that, was that a good thing or a bad thing? I love it. I you love know? it. Um, and so I just think with, with, with kids, I want them to decide to make a decision. Let's see how that goes. I don't want them to do something catastrophic. Right. But I, you know, but I, I, I um, there's a woman. Uh, uh, there's a woman who uh, was is, did our foreign contracts, uh, our our, our uh -huh. literary agency, uh -huh. and who's just one of the funniest and smartest people I've ever met. Uh -huh. And she said, you know, I took I took introduction to music as a freshman in college, and I flunked it. And initially, I was so embarrassing. I, I thought, oh my god. After about a month, I realized, hey, 
I don't, I don't have to worry about having to be a straight A student, I'm trying to maintain straight A's. So it's, it's liberating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because so, and so often, part of the reason that I'm just so humble about this is I don't know what a kid wants. I don't, I don't know what a kid, who he wants to be. I don't, I don't know what, a, and ultimately, my definition of a successful life is a life you're happy with. We saw so many people who are, are successful in every conceivable way, except that they're unhappy and, and they have no peace. And who and so, the kid is, I'm sorry. No, go, go, go. And who the kid is 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 unfolding to be and discovering and self-discovering, which is part of your autonomy. And, well, that, that's self-driven. That's, that's exactly right. And and so somebody said to me once, and I, I didn't know that the focus of the podcast is early childhood. I apologize for this, but but no, no, but, I think it's all but, relevant. Thank you. But so somebody somebody said to me so long ago, I don't remember what. He said, you know what I really loved about raising adolescents is every day when they come home from school, you get to see who they're deciding to be. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I think we right. we extend that down. We extend it down to the fact yeah. that. I, you know that, that kid wants to kid wants to go to school, the preschool with mismatch. Miss, think I love this outfit. We think yeah. it looks mismatched, and say, "Oh, yeah. look, that looks good to you." Fine. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think that that, uh, and again, it's not that, it's not that a sense of control means that the kids are, are they're supposed to control everything. Of they course. get to be the boss of their family. It doesn't mean yeah. that at all. No. It just means that we treat them respectfully. Yeah. We treat them like people, yeah. and, uh, and who have their own minds. Mm. Of their own opinions, yeah. of the things they'd like and that don't are want. valid. Yeah, yeah, things are important to them. Unless I mean, you can't, uh, things you know, when kids say, little kids say, "Well, I, I don't really care I, very much about reading. It's not important to me." But you can't make it. You, you can say, "Well, you're going to need. You, know, you can do that." Oh. So, but you, you model how fun it is to, to read, how, how cool it is, and and but you don't try to make them want what they don't want. And we can start that very, very little, very, 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 very yeah. little. And I want to ask you, how, do you have guidance for asking questions to draw kids out? You know, that's that's something I'm I'm hot on. I, I found a lot of success with that, that aren't leading questions or yes, no, right, wrong questions. But do you have any guidance on that that you've thought much about? You know, I I, I found with with preschool age kids, I found that the best way for, for me to, to get kids to talk was initially was to, talk, to share something myself, uh-huh. you know, and, and just uh-huh. I'd say, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this, you know, and and, uh-huh. uh, and oh, did you ever think about that, that that, that kind of thing? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. You know, I wonder what I wonder what you know. I wonder what happened if we did, tried this or, uh, uh-huh. uh, but I, I I found so, so, uh, with young kids, if I just if I started talking about tell me, I start talking about my dog or something, I did that. My dog did the craziest thing today, and, and, and um, that. Um, I, I could I could find ways of getting to, to to open up about stuff um, yeah, and by yeah. kind of tell, telling telling something that, that I've experienced, yeah, um, like that. That I I'd say that I I'd say in terms of in questions, um, I think that certainly we we know that asking open ended questions yes. um, is is arguably the best way to elicit um, kids' feelings uh, as, yeah. as opposed to yes no, yeah yeah uh, you know, what did that uh, you know, what well, I wonder what you know. I wonder why that happened. You know, what, 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 yeah, I'm trying to make sense of that. You know, so the the, the why yeah. that how, how did that happen? You know, the, yeah. the, the the why is as opposed to did you do did you do this or that? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, yeah. I think the, those yeah, open ended yeah, yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah. And in our new book, uh, we t- there's a chapter on 
uh, I, I'm basically it, it's it's the futility of trying to change kids. <laughs> and it, it's um it's called the language and silence of change. Ooh, and that's the title of the book. But that's the title of the chapter. Okay, okay. The language and and silence of change. Wow. And the silence is the listening part. Yes. It's the helping people change. Yes. It's listening, and, and so we talk about something called motivational interviewing, which uh, started out as a tool for working with people who had, who had chemical dependency. And because people in the early days were trying to help alcoholics, their problem drinkers, they, they'd preach to them about how bad it is, uh, it's going to yeah. you know, destroy your life and your, yeah. your wife will lead you. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it just didn't work. Yeah. What they found is this, if they just listened respectfully and say, Tell, what does alcohol do for you? And they, they, they'd say, well, I'm, I'm much less anxious. I don't worry as much. I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm better socially. But they eventually say, yeah, but I, I think my wife may be leaving me. I mean, so I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm, not, I'm not present at home. And they, they voice their own reasons for changing. Exactly. And then what you say is, is so, um, so what, 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 what might you be able to do, I think, if, to, to, to change that situation if you want your wife to stay? Well, I should probably be drinking less. You got an idea about that? So you're you're asking right. them these it's kind of open-ended questions. Right. And you're and you're using that reflective listening. You're kind of li you're repeating back kind of what so what and so there's a story in the book about so again, these are involving teenagers who are smoking a lot of pot. Yeah. And rather rather than lecturing them about you know, trying to punish them, they say, yeah. So what does pot do for and they wax rhapsodic about how much right. how less anxious they are, how much fun yeah. things are. Yeah. And then they say, yeah, but it's awful expensive. Or yeah, but there's one kid in my case. Yeah, but I just can't push myself in basketball the way I need to, to make the varsity. Yeah. And they say, well, what, 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 what does that imply? Well, maybe I, maybe I smoke less. And, and, and they do. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, and I think there's things we can apply to yeah. little kids. Yes, I by, do too. By asking open-ended questions, absolutely respectful listening, and not trying to to, to overtly change them. Yes. We we there's there's we also talk in this chapter, Nini. This this definitely applies to young children too. Yeah. About something called the Space Program. It's an it's a program out of Yale. It's an acronym that stand, that stands for Supportive Parenting of Anxious Childhood Emotions. And it's a program that, that, that just works with parents to help kids with anxiety. They only work with the parents. And it's effective as therapy is for the kids. And the premise is that because we're mammals, we're wired to protect and soothe our young. And so if we have kids who are anxious, you know, separation anxiety or whatever it is, uh, little kids, that we, we make accommodations. That we let them sleep in our bed. They're, or they're anxious standing at the bus stop. Uh, we stand with them. And those accommodations make kids anxious, less anxious in the moment, but they make them more anxious over time. So that there's mm. ways that, that, ways that we, we have tremendous power uh, as adults to help kids in a variety of ways without trying to explicitly change them. And one of the premises of, of the space program is that if you try to change somebody who's not asking you to help them change, uh. What you get is conflict and resistance. Yeah. And think about how, how much we try to change young children. Or Maybe. fake complicity. Well, yeah, ex exactly. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right, right. They can do that too. That's a very good point. Right. But so I think I think that applies too to little kids where we're and certainly I'm not opposed with some kids to using behavior modification kind of stuff. And I, okay. uh, but um 
it's not a good long-term solution. Rewards right, and right. punishments are not good. And, right. and really, kind of the relationship, uh, collaborative problem-solving, talking yes. with kids about stuff, much yes. more effective. Yes. Um, so, and the idea that, that just that we think we, we can change people, well, we'll probably give that one up. We, yeah. we, we have we, we're powerful ways to help people change if they want to change. Well, I love that you use that term and I've seen it in your writing and stuff like that, that the parent and the teacher are consultants. There's, well, just, there's such a non-forceful, uh, it's an invitation to uh, accept guidance that you are open to receiving. Well, that, that, that's, the way the, that's the way the energy works best. I mean, it, it, it's, so, so we found in working, writing a second book, so much of what we talked about was changing the energy yeah you know yeah. ned has this, this cartoon yeah. where the dad there's this kid by the nape of the neck he says look listen up boys and listen up good because i'm willing to tell you this a million times you know <laughs> you know and well there's, there's probably more effective ways of communicating than telling a kid a million times you know yeah and, um and so um yeah it's yeah. so i, I think yeah. so this thinking having a, a kind of a nuanced understanding of how we help people change. Exactly. Uh, is, is really powerful virtually any age. Yeah, that's basically and, the bottom line. Yeah. And, and how powerful, how, if we change our steps. Yes. The, we have so much power to help. Yes, yes, um, yes, be, be, yes, yes. The whole thinking about anxiety in children has changed quite a lot in the last 10 years, where, where it used to be, if something makes them anxious, let's try to, let's try to keep them away from the thing that makes them anxious. Mm -hmm. and, it, and then it turns out that just makes them more anxious mm -hmm. so now it's, it's mm -hmm. the, the message is i know that this makes you anxious but a hundred i'm a hundred percent confident you can handle your anxiety it's not going to kill you it's uncomfortable you can mm -hmm. handle it because you're strong mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and what kind of support do you need or what, what questions can i answer about this or what? yeah 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 yeah, yeah. You're, you're you're available to help right you know, but 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 um but the idea is we don't want kids to be afraid of their anxiety. Yes. Even even little kids. Because you know, that 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 uh, anxiety in many ways is is, is normal and, and yes. it's 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 adaptive. Yes. If you have to give a presentation or you got you know, they got a deadline, a little anxiety can help you perform at a higher level. Oh, I, I appreciate this so much because when I see fear in people fear motivated and fear stopping things from happening. You know, I just think it's so such a wasted direction in life because fear can be managed, you know, and unless it's the shark coming right at you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Fear is okay. It's not something to just be totally just avoid at all times or pain or failure or mistakes or, all that stuff that, yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. I, I know. It, and I think changing changing our thinking about that um, is, is is huge. And, yeah, huge. you know, I, um, I, gave a, I gave a lecture uh, on, uh, on the adolescent brain. I, I used to lecture a lot about the adolescent brain. Mm. And my, my daughter, when she was 16, she came with me. I mean, she was a very she was a high achieving student, um, very motivated girl. And, and I mentioned, that um, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem to make much difference where you go to college in terms of how you turn out, and um, maybe no difference at all. And and she, she and she when the way back we were driving home from the lecture, she said, "You know, I bet you don't really believe that." 
you, you, that your grades don't really aren't are that, that important, where you go to college isn't that important. And I said, well, I, I believe it enough that I'll, I offered her a hundred bucks for a C so that she could, <laughs> so you could see that, that just, you know, you know so I, 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 I used to be young enough that I could say to people, if you came to me when you were 30, and you, you said, well, my whole life has been a wash, so they got a C in high school, you know, I got, or whatever, whatever it is, my whole life is something that you think is some disaster. Mm -hmm. I said, get over it. Create yeah. a life. You, you, got, you, yeah. got, you still have plenty yeah. of time to create a Beautiful. life. Don't Beautiful. waste any more time. Yeah. What a mindset to bring into our interactions with the students and kids in our lives, you know, that get over it. <laughs> Forward, <laughs> moving on, moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's not to invalidate their feelings, but yeah, it's just yeah, the, no. the, the, the idea that that somehow, um, uh, if it's, the kids grow up thinking that 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 they're, everything that they do is being evaluated, it's going to affect their, their college and their whole life. Yeah. And, it, and when I learned in 1991 that kids could fail all of their classes. Probably in 1989, you could fail all your classes in high school. Beside that was a bad idea. You can go to community college and get about 30 credits for two semesters. Yeah. And you can apply to most of the colleges in the country and they don't want to see your high school transcript. There's so many things like that the kids grew up believing that, yeah. that they're great. Yeah. And, and even, even I've had a second grade girl. I tested a second grade girl a few years ago. And she said, um, I, said I said, are there things you worry about? Yeah. He said, well, I worry about my grades because I, I I really want to go to a good college. And I'm going, oh, my God, she's in second oh grade. Oh, my God. But it, it got a little bit better because she said, yeah. she said um, I, I want to go to a good college like American University because they have an elevation burger. and I love their fries. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it wasn't as worrisome as I thought. But, uh, just take a field trip there. Um, okay. So now, oh God, I've loved this so much, Bill. Um, I just want to ask you, I know that you have, you you talked for a moment about meditation and I think you have mindfulness that you uh, encourage. Or So in what ways do you, and who, for who, and when do you say this person would do well with this? Or well, I don't know how to ask this question exactly, but uh, which so, way do you? I, I think both both uh, both my co-author and I practice transcendental meditation. And okay. For, for me, it was life changing. I mean, when I flunked out of graduate school, huh. um, three three people told me I was the most nervous person they've ever met. Huh, huh. And one of them said, "If there's anybody on this planet that needs to learn to meditate, it's you." Uh -huh. so, so I did. And when I went when I went when I went back to graduate school in psychology, a year you know after meditating for a year, I felt, I felt like I had an unfair advantage. I mean, it was really life changing for me. Wow. And Ned was just saying that Ned's son, he talks about this publicly, so I don't mind saying it, but a year ago had a brain tumor. He's a freshman in college, had a brain tumor. And his wife, who started meditating about three years ago, was asked by a couple of people, you know, why are, why, why are you so calm about this? So I think it's the meditation. Yeah. And so I just think that, for especially for people that they have a sensitive nervous system that's easily stressed, yeah. having the tool to deeply yeah. relax their mind and body is useful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, we have we have a chapter in this chapter on radical downtime in the self-driven child. I love that. I love it. We, we talk about we talk about uh, transcendental meditation and, and we also talk about mindfulness. And I think that mindfulness has a lot of practical uh, applications. I think that yes. Uh, I think for children 
TM is easier to do because it's, 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 it's effortless and um, doesn't require concentration. But I think that, that uh, mindfulness practices involving um, self-awareness, so, some breathing can be yeah. very useful. Right? The, yeah. the kids are typically taught mindfulness practices as emergency medicine. So when yeah. you're upset, you, you use your breathing or like yeah. that. Exactly. Um, and I think, which I think is helpful. But I also think it's helpful to, to have something like TM where you just do it twice a day, whether right. you feel like it or not, just right. because over time, it, 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 it'll, it'll, it'll make your nervous system less reactive. Right. Um, More resilient. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Beautiful, beautiful. So I'm going to put information about you in the show's notes. And is there anything else that um, you'd like us to well, concentrate on? Let me just think if there's anything. Um... Oh, uh, one last thing. Yes. I'll just say. There's no evidence at all that, that, that young children get any benefit from, from technology. And so, so many kids now, by the time that they're three or four, they're, 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 a lot of their, their play is electronic. Yeah. And it, 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 that do everything we can to, to let kids play outside yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the self-directed imaginary play yeah. rough and tumble play chase game Please. they're making it up it's not it's not it's not coach-led and it's not program pre-programmed yes. um, and i think that that, that the mammals young mammals play they do and they they have for for millions of years that they the yes. young mammals that's how they learn to be adults yeah it's learning to regulate that's learning to get along with people yeah and we've started the reason that kids have so many emotional problems we short-circuited that that by yes. by introducing electronic play and starting kids into team sports when they're three or four as opposed to just letting them play we yes. think it's too dangerous for them to play outside it's not yeah um and I think so that, that that would be my parting message, I think, to, to early childhood people yeah. would be to do whatever, whatever influence we have with, with, with parents is to, is, to, is to prolong the period that they have without electronic entertainment, mm. where, where, where they're using their own imaginations. I, my, mm. My, my, mm. my daughter was very, has always been very careful about this. And, and I, was, I was very curious because her kids, her, her two girls, they just play together. They, they make up. They're, they're constantly playing Little House in the Prairie or the, the, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I, I was curious to see with the pandemic, when, when at that time they were probably um, seven and, and five, would they still play when they, when they have to be on Zoom all the time? They're, mm -hmm. they do the, oh, the, the right. virtual learning. Right. And all they wanted to do was play. Yeah. And I think that, that, there's, that they're just different. So one of our um, one of our friends said they're like English children. She's, she's British. So, yeah. you know, they, they, um, so I, I think I think for little kids, that's that's this remembering the importance of play, mm -hmm. the importance of, of getting enough sleep. And mm -hmm. You're getting enough, you're getting enough sleep. You we know you're going to sleep if you aren't tired when you wake up. You aren't mm -hmm. tired in the daytime. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah, I'll leave it there. Simple, simple stuff. It it's so life altering and life developing thank you bill with all oh. my heart this is so what a good. pleasure nini oh so, rich. so nice to know you yes you too you too all right goodbye for now okay. thank Take you care. again thank yeah. you bye, bye. Okay, so 
uh, check out the show's notes. There's just, uh, uh, I spent a ton of time collecting resources for you and I hope you will make best use of them because there is so much that Bill shared with us and pointed us in the direction of so that we can do so much of this on our own. It's all right there for us to help and nurture and strengthen kids in their own development for everyone's benefit. Thank you.